Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Kansas City Butcher. But first, your true crime headlines. A woman in Tennessee has narrowly escaped being kidnapped. The woman had run out of gas on the side of the highway when a trucker, Roy Nelsch, stopped to help. He offered her a ride, but when he drove past the exit, the woman became worried and began screaming. Nelsch pulled over and held her at gunpoint, telling her that he was going to rape her. After forcing her into the truck's cabin and tearing her clothes, the woman managed to turn the gun towards her attacker and pulled the trigger. The gun did not go off, however, and Nelsch produced a second gun with which he struck the woman in the head. He then handcuffed the victim and put a blanket over her head. She managed to get one hand free and put the blanket over her attacker's head and wrapped her arm around his throat until he pulled off the road. She then escaped and flagged down another driver for help. Authorities were able to find and arrest Nelsch and found him in possession of child pornography as well as women's bras and underwear. A Georgia girl presumed to be among those found dead in a house fire has been found alive and was arrested for murder. 16-year-old Candace Walton was apprehended 450 miles from her home in Monroe County, Georgia, just hours after two bodies were found burned beyond recognition. One has been determined to be her 21-year-old special needs brother. Though the second body has not been identified, it seems likely that it is that of Candace's mother, Tasha Vandiver. Tasha is still missing. Walton has been charged with two counts of murder and arson, as well as theft for stealing her mother's car. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the Kansas City Butcher. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. It was the day before Easter Sunday in Kansas City on April 2, 1988, when police received a 911 call. A naked man wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck had jumped from a second-story window of a house on Charlotte Street in Hyde Park, fled, and was now sitting on a neighbor's porch with a broken foot. It was 22-year-old prostitute Christopher Bryson. His eyes were red and swollen, and his body was covered in welts and scars. Bryson told police that a man had knocked him unconscious by hitting him over the head with an iron bar, bound him to a bed, drugged him, tortured him, and raped him in the house for four days, periodically swabbing his eyes with ammonia and injecting his throat with drain cleaner to diminish his ability to scream. After a few days, Bryson had earned the trust of his captor. Bryson complained to him that his arms were losing circulation and persuaded the man to tie his hands in front of him rather than to the bed above his head. The man agreed, but warned Bryson, quote, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. And Bryson knew 
that this was not an empty threat. He told police that his captor had shown him Polaroid pictures of other young men who appeared to be dead, young men that he had unsuccessfully attempted to collect as his sexual slaves. And he had no intention of ever letting Bryson leave his property alive. When his captor left for work that day, Bryson saw his opportunity for escape. His captor had absent-mindedly left a book of matches within his reach, which Bryson used to burn through his restraints. Christopher Bryson was driven to the Menorah Medical Center for treatment, accompanied by a police officer. Two police officers stayed behind to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property, and a fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a search warrant for 4315 Charlotte Street. Inside the home, police found 334 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of men living and dead, including a few of Christopher Bryson. Upstairs, tied to the worn bedposts, were Bryson's burned restraints. The home was full of torture devices, various lengths of rope, leather belts, books on witchcraft and the occult, even a satanic ritual robe. Plugged into the wall, was an electrical transformer with wires leading to the bed. Next to it was a metal tray covered with syringes, bottles of prescription drugs, eye drops, and a detailed torture diary spanning four years, documenting the kidnapping, torture, and murder of at least six young men, most of them prostitutes. The killer kept many souvenirs, newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star about a missing young man named Jerry Howell, a driver's license belonging to another missing man named James Ferris, several human vertebrae, and two envelopes containing teeth. Upstairs in the closet, they found a human skull. When they excavated the home's backyard, they found another. In the basement of the house, a chainsaw was found, covered with bloodstains, flesh, and pubic hairs. The house belonged to Robert Berdella, a man who would go on to become known as the Kansas City Butcher. Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was born in Ohio on January 31, 1949. Berdella was the oldest of two sons. His father, Robert Berdella Sr., was a die-setter for the Ford Motor Company, and his mother, Mary, was a homemaker. The Berdellas raised their children in a strict Catholic household, regularly attending Mass and sending their sons to religious education courses. Robert was an intelligent child, but a loner with few friends and rarely played outside. He had high blood pressure, a speech impediment, and wore thick glasses for his nearsightedness. His younger brother, Daniel, on the other hand, was athletic 
and outgoing. Robert's father favored his brother and saw his eldest son's lack of interest and ability as a failure. And failure was unacceptable. Robert's father was both physically and emotionally abusive, sometimes beating Robert and Daniel with a leather strap. And the abuse continued at school, where Robert was tormented by bullies. Later, when Robert reached puberty, he discovered that he was homosexual, a fact that he kept hidden from his devoutly Catholic family for years. By 16, Robert was finally beginning to show some confidence when tragedy struck. On Christmas Day, 1965, the Bradella family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit relatives. That evening, Robert's father died of a heart attack at age 39. At first, Robert turned to his Catholic faith for solace. Then, he read extensively about other faiths before finally abandoning religion altogether. When Robert's mother remarried shortly after his father's death, Robert viewed it as a betrayal and did little to hide his resentment. Robert became withdrawn and his attitude toward women became increasingly condescending and hostile. He once again became a loner, immersing himself in painting, stamp and coin collecting, and writing to foreign pen pals. Sometimes these pen pals would send him small gifts, stamps, photographs of mythical and historical figures, artifacts which he added to his collection. It was around this time that Robert saw the 1965 film, The Collector, a movie about a disturbed loner who kidnaps a beautiful art student and holds her captive in his basement, hoping that she will learn to love him. A film that Robert would never forget. In 1967, Robert Berdella graduated from high school and enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute on a partial scholarship. He hoped to become a college professor. And at first, Robert was an exemplary student, but by his second year, Robert became openly anti-authoritarian, had developed a drinking problem, and started using and dealing drugs on campus. At age 19, Robert was arrested for attempting to sell methamphetamines to an undercover officer. One month later, he was arrested again for possession of marijuana and LSD and spent five days in jail. But far more troubling was Robert's new performance art. Right in front of his fellow art students, Robert tortured a duck, beheaded it, and danced around with the bloody carcass. He also experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. When the administration learned of Robert's performance, he was forced to withdraw from the Art Institute in 1969. But rather than return to Ohio, Robert decided to stay in Kansas City 
became a chef and moved into a house at 4315 Charlotte Street. Robert was now living as an openly gay man, spending much of his free time befriending male prostitutes, runaways, and drug addicts. To his neighbors, Berdella appeared to be helping these troubled youths get back on track, loaning them money and sometimes letting them live in his home rent-free. He was helpful to his community and civic-minded, encouraging neighborhood watch patrols, organizing fundraising events. By the 80s, Robert was the chairman of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, was working as a senior cook at several of the top Kansas City restaurants, established a training program for young aspiring chefs at a community college, and had turned his love of collecting into a successful side business. Bob's Bizarre Bazaar, a flea market stall, specializing in antiques, primitive art, and ethnological curiosities from the world's far corners. There, Robert met and befriended another merchant, Paul Howell, and his 19-year-old son, Jerry. Jerry and Robert struck up a casual friendship, and Jerry confided to Robert that he and his friends were working as male prostitutes to earn extra money. Robert assumed the role of mentor, as he had with so many other young men, occasionally helping Jerry out with money or bailing him out of minor scrapes with the law. On July 4th, 1984, Robert Berdella picked up Jerry Howell under the guise of driving him to a dance in Merriam. Instead, Robert drove Jerry to his house, plying him with alcohol and Valium until he passed out. Robert then injected Jerry with a tranquilizer and tied the young man to his bed. For the next day, Jerry Howell was raped and tortured. He pleaded with Robert to stop, to let him go, and asked Robert why he was doing this to him. But Robert ignored him. Approximately 28 hours later, Jerry Howell was dead. Robert Berdella would later say that Jerry, quote, either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch breath. According to Robert Berdella, he then dragged Jerry's body to the basement and attempted to resuscitate him, but failed. Robert Berdella then suspended Jerry's body over a large cooking pot, cut incisions into his elbows and jugular vein, and left his body to drain of blood overnight. The next day, he dismembered him, wrapped the pieces in newspapers and trash bags, and threw them out with the garbage to be picked up at the curb and taken to the landfill. When Jerry Howell was reported missing, Robert simply claimed that he drove him to Merriam as planned, dropped him off, and hadn't seen him since. On April 10th, 1985, Robert Berdella's next victim landed on his doorstep. 
23-year-old Robert Sheldon. Sheldon had stayed at the house before and needed a place to crash for a while. According to Robert Rodella, Sheldon failed to pay rent, and although he claimed that he wasn't physically attracted to Sheldon, Robert decided to, quote, express some of the anger and frustration that he had toward other people on him. Sheldon was drugged and held captive in the second-floor bedroom for the next three days, as Robert swapped drain cleaner in his left eye, inserted needles under his nails, bound his wrists with piano wire to damage his nerves, and filled his ears with caulk to deafen him. On April 15th, a workman arrived to repair the roof of the house. Robert quickly tied a sack over Sheldon's head and suffocated him. In June, Mark Wallace became victim number three. Mark had once helped Robert with some yard work. When Robert found Mark hiding in his tool shed, seeking shelter from a thunderstorm, he invited him inside the house. He knew that Mark suffered from depression and offered to inject Mark with chlorpromazine to calm him and relax him. Mark willingly accepted Robert's offer. Thirty minutes later, he was captive. Robert applied alligator clips to Mark's nipples, and every time Mark passed out, sent electrical shocks to his body. Just one hour after his experimenting on him, inserting hypodermic needles into the muscles on Mark's back. At 7 p.m. on June 23rd, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs, the gag, and the lack of oxygen, according to Robert Berdella. On September 26, 1985, James Ferris telephoned Robert, asking if he could stay at his home for a while. Robert agreed. Robert Berdella would later claim to police that James Ferris was the first victim that he intentionally set out to torture. First, Robert drugged him with crushed tranquilizers that he had concealed in his food. Then, he tied him to the bed, and for the next 27 hours, James Ferris was perpetually tortured. Robert administered electrical shocks to his shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes at a time, and acupuncture via hypodermic needles to his neck and genitals. James Ferris became delirious from the pain, but Robert didn't relent. He sexually and physically assaulted Ferris continually, keeping a record of Ferris's reactions. Robert noted, unable to sit up more than 10 to 15 seconds. Then, very delayed breathing. The final entry simply read, 86. Robert later explained to detectives that this meant, quote, anything from throw it out 
to stop the project. James Ferris was dead. On June 17, 1986, Robert Brudella was at Kansas City's Liberty Memorial Park when he ran into an old friend, Todd Stoops, a drug addict and sometimes prostitute who, with his wife, had twice lived briefly at Robert's house in 1984. Stoops needed $13 for drugs, roughly $30 today. Robert invited him over to his house for lunch and to pay him for sex. But Todd Stoops wasn't like Robert's previous victims. Robert explained to investigators that he had always been very attracted to Stoops. This time, Robert wanted to keep his captive alive and attempted to use increasing terror to turn Todd Stoops into a cooperative and helpless sex slave. For two weeks, Robert tortured Todd Stoops, using electrical shocks through his closed eyelids in an attempt to blind him and injecting drain cleaner into his larynx to silence his screams. At some point during his second week of capture, Todd Stoops asked Robert if he could please have a sandwich and a soft drink. When Robert refused, Stoops burst into tears. On June 27th, Robert ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing massive bleeding and discharge. Toward the end of the second week, as Todd Stoops rapidly declined, Robert attempted to feed his captive soft foods, ice cream, soup, but he was too far gone. Todd Stoops was unable to keep any food down. On the final day of his life, he was so weak that he was unable to breathe in a sitting position. On July 1st, 1986, Todd Stoops died of septic shock caused by his ruptured anal wall. Almost a year passed when in the spring of 1987, a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson walked into Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. The two men formed a friendship through their shared fascination with the occult, and soon Larry Wayne Pearson became Robert's new house guest. According to Robert Burdella, he had no intention of making this young man his captive. Larry Pearson earned his keep working around the house, taking care of the chores. But on June 23rd, Robert decided to change his plans. When, after bailing Pearson out of jail, the 20-year-old began joking about robbing gay men back in Wichita. Robert drugged Larry Pearson later that night, took him down into the basement, and bound his hands above his head. Like others before him, Larry Pearson's larynx was injected with drain cleaner to ensure his silence. And Robert dragged the electrical transformer down into the basement. Of all of his victims, Robert told investigators, Larry Pearson was by far 
the most cooperative. After breaking his hands with an iron rod and five days of electrical shocks, Pearson became submissive to Robert's physical and sexual abuse. To reward him for this submission, Robert decided to move Pearson upstairs and promised him that as long as he continued to cooperate, he wouldn't torture him as severely as he had in the basement. According to Robert, by his sixth week in captivity, Pearson was so afraid of Robert returning him to the basement that he had trained himself to sleep without moving. But at the end of the sixth week, Larry Pearson broke. He bit hard into Robert Berdella's penis and shouted that he couldn't take it anymore. Robert Berdella bludgeoned him unconscious and suffocated him. He then rushed himself to the hospital to receive medical treatment for his wounds and unbelievably filed an assault report stating that a man named Larry Pearson had bitten his penis during oral sex. He then returned to dismember Larry's body in the basement and buried him in the backyard. It was the following year, on March 29, 1988, that Robert Verdella abducted 22-year-old Christopher Bison, the victim who would lead to his capture. By the time Bryson leapt from his second-story window, Kansas City's male prostitutes had already learned to steer clear of Robert Verdella. Police discovered that the transient community had long suspected that Robert was behind the disappearances of Jerry Howell and James Ferris. Robert's penchant for drugging and torturing his sexual partners and preying on young transient men may have been news to Robert's neighbors, but they were already well aware. Police began the difficult task of identifying the men in the hundreds of Polaroids found in Robert's home, determining whether they were dead or alive, and if alive, tracking them down. Six victims were confirmed dead and identified. Many of the other young men in the pictures were former lodgers at the house. One of these, Freddie Kellogg, was identified and located by investigators. Kellogg confirmed to detectives that he and several other young men had stayed at the house with Robert Berdella since the early 80s. Robert would dose his lodgers with drugs, have sex with them, and photograph them, whether they consented or not. Of the 26 or 27 different men identified in the photos, all were accounted for, except two. In late April, dental records confirmed that the skull found in Robert's closet was that of Robert Sheldon. The skull in the backyard was identified using the same method. It was Larry Wayne Pearson. On July 22nd, 1988, Robert Berdella Jr. was charged with the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. In August, he pleaded guilty. 
the judge insisted that Robert Burdella confess under oath. Robert Burdella stated, quote, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he performed this act deliberately and with malice aforethought, Burdella simply stated, Yes. Robert Burdella Jr. was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. A second guilty plea on August 24th earned Robert Burdella a further life term without parole for one charge of forcible sodomy and one charge of felonious restraint against escaped victim Christopher Bryson. Just before Christmas, on December 19th, as part of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, Robert Burdella returned to court and confessed to the other five killings. Robert Sheldon, 23, Jerry Howell, 19, Mark Wallace, 20, Walter Ferris, 25, and Todd Stoops, 25. In total, Robert Burdella received six life sentences. In his confessions, Robert Burdella claimed the movie he had first seen way back in 1965, The Collector, had made a significant impression on him. After killing his first victim and the initial senses of shock and disgust he claimed to have felt, the film had resurfaced in his memory as a motivating psychological force. Once he had chosen to render his victims captive, they lost any degree of humanity in Robert Burdella's eyes. He talked about having certain dark fantasies that came to life, said Albert Riederer, Jackson County prosecutor, following the court hearing. He felt abused or misused by certain people, including some of the victims. There was revenge, or getting control of these people. Robert Burdella's crimes went on to inspire movies, books, and even songs. A local radio host wrote a parody song called They Call Me Bob Burdella, set to the tune of the 1966 hit Mellow Yellow. The song was played on local radio stations, which gave out prizes to listeners who showed up to events wearing dog collars. Robert Burdella complained about the media coverage in his only recorded interview on January 2nd, 1989. Uh, not long after your uh, arrest, pardon me, the local radio stations, two of them at least, were running a Bob Burdella parody song and were asking people to come to parties wearing dog collars. Well, I think the newspaper article reported that even the families of the victims were upset by the song. I have never had a chance to hear the I song. I had also been told when I first came into jail that the Fox radio station had run a promo giving prizes to their listeners if they showed up at the station in a dog collar and with a leash on. The people here in the institution, the correctional officers, the caseworker, even the psychiatrist, were, I think, surprised to find out that that upset me. 
and it did upset you. Very much so. You're sitting here as a man who's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. You've confessed to murder of six young men in this city and crimes that uh, horrified the city and much of the country. You've confessed to, in various degrees, felonious restraint, drugging people, sexually abusing them, torturing them, killing them, dismembering them. And until now, you've uh, refused all interviews. So in light of all those facts, I have to ask you, uh, why are you here? What is it you have to say to us? What is it you want to say about yourself in this case? Well, I've had the media clamoring to get interviews with me. And after I made my last pleas, I wanted to get at least part of my side of it out. I found it very hard to find any way to do that in Kansas City. The media has so biased my case, portraying me as being non-human, and their motivation is no separate from what the way I treated my victims. I treated them as something less than human. It's nothing more than a play toy or not a play object. This is what the media has done to me. It's dehumanized me so that it can believe, along with the public, that things like human sacrifice, set Satanism, demonic practices, are more believable than me being a neighbor next door who reached a point in his life where he could do monstrous acts. That's not the same thing as being a monster. In prison, Robert Berdella wrote dozens of letters accusing the prison officials of abuse and claiming that authorities either delayed or outright denied giving him his needed heart medication. On October 8th, 1992, Robert Berdella's life sentence was cut short when he died in Missouri State Penitentiary of a heart attack. He was 43. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.